The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, today I want to start a little bit of a a three-part series. I'll be here three times in the next couple of months, um, or next six weeks or so, and so I'll just do them when I'm here. And a while back, I talked about sources of well-being, and I want to add to that and talk about three roots of well-being, three roots of dharmic happiness, which I've talked about before in this group last year. And these are non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And they are corollaries to what is called the three roots, the unwholesome roots in Theravada Buddhism, greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's such an emphasis in the ancient tradition on noticing them, which is very important. However, there's also real value, real value in noticing their absence, because what we appreciate, we cultivate. And it can provide a different reference point for evolving on the path, growing in our meditation. So this non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion piece, early Buddhism defined a lot of things through negation. Um, It could be clunky in English, and it has a real power. And I'll speak more to the usefulness of non as a prefix in a few minutes, that negation. But first, I want to talk about what makes these three qualities roots of well-being. In of themselves, they are really generative, often of contentment, of happiness, of a feeling of goodness deep within. And in addition to that, there's supportive conditions not only for each other, but also for further forms of flourishing, healing, fullness, even Nibbana, awakening. So they're both good in of themselves, even the slightest moment of them, and they are powerful foundations. And in their deepest forms, they're even aspects of awakening itself. A person whose mind and heart are completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion, is considered awakened. A powerful and high bar, right? So noticing these moments is consequential. And while I myself am not free of greed, hatred, and delusion in all moments, and I imagine most of you wouldn't be here on a meditation group if you were, we can still learn a lot. We can nourish our hearts, life, practice through noticing and cultivating areas or even finger snap instances of the absence of greed, the absence of hatred or hostility, and the absence of delusion. Inside every no, every absence, there's a yes, a possibility, a potential 
So today I'll focus on non-greed. And there's a wide range of flavors of non-greed that can express. Three classic ones in the ancient teachings are contentment, renunciation or letting go, and generosity. So contentment, santuti in Pali. The Buddha teaches that this is one of the greatest sources of inner wealth. That comes from the Dhammapada. And there are many levels of this. So there's being content with physical, material belongings, for example. For a mendicant, a monk, or a nun, that's their robe and bowl and the food and medicine that's offered. It's pretty simple. For us, lay people, it's being content with appreciating what we have rather than focusing on what I want. That doesn't mean to not to make movements in our lives towards improving them or meeting our needs. Of course we do. But it's a difference in the set point, the leaning outwards of want, 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 want versus the standing in what is and appreciating, wow, I have running water that won't kill me. I have a toilet that flushes. I'm under a roof when it's raining, if in fact that's true. The basic necessities and the other blessings or gifts that happen to be in life. Their second level would be contentment in the practice. And um, a very famous Scholar monk, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, lifts this story up. He doesn't cite it, so I'm not certain it's from the suttas, but it has the flavor of something one would read in the discourses. He talks about the story of the foolish cow. This cow is happily on a hillside, eating grass in this verdant meadow. And she's inexperienced, maybe kind of young, maybe not very wise, and looks across to another hillside and sees this other verdant pasture and decides, you know, I'm going to go check out that one. Even though she has plenty. Trot, 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 off she goes and gets lost in a ravine between the two hills. And then she can't get back to the pasture she was at before and she hasn't gotten to the new pasture. And to me, this story, I mean, literally, the grass is greener type of story, right? It points to moments of meditation, too. If each hill is a moment, each pasture is a moment, the act of trying to travel out from an experience we're having now and find another one isn't so helpful a lot of the time. That doesn't mean there's not wise discernment about the mind states that are arising. It means that notice the leaning forward, notice the tendency to wander into the ravine. It's usually not very helpful. There's power in being content with this breath, this moment, any little experience of ease in meditation. It's like a little spark, that ease, that contentment. And if we appreciate it, it's like blowing on the embers of a nascent fire to allow the fire 
to get stronger. And this speaks also to contentment in general, speaks to how on this path often the means help to bring about the ends. Striving and straining greatly for greater freedom and contentment takes us away from greater contentment. So settling. I'm going to read the wisdom from one of the, this is a book of poetry based on the awakening songs of the first bhikkhunis in the Buddha's order, nuns, fully ordained and fully awakened women, 2,600 years ago. This woman's name is Bhadra. And she says, I'm modifying this very slightly, just so you know, you always considered yourself lucky when things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now, luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each moment. Regardless of how things work out or don't. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment. So the next level or next flavor of experience I want to talk about, and there are many, many, many of them. If we have time, we'll brainstorm some of them at the end. But the next flavor of non-greed that appears in many, many places in the discourses in the Buddhist teachings is renunciation or letting go. This is not always a popular topic in contemporary culture. You may have noticed. In some ways, our society runs on greed, our economy runs on greed. However, Renunciation is highly regarded, not just by the Buddha, but by sages of many of the great spiritual, philosophical, and religious traditions. And he talks about the Buddha presents the Buddhist path in a number of different ways, his path in a number of different ways over the long arc of his teachings. And one of them is as a gradual process of letting go, letting go of coarser pleasures, for finer ones. There's, um, I didn't look this up, but there's a, a story in the suttas about two friends traveling back to their home village together. And along the way, they keep finding these amazing just um, offerings from the world by the roadside that they can pick up. But they're traveling by foot and they don't have that much capacity to carry things. So the story goes something like they find rough hemp for rope on the side of the road. Oh, that's great. Let's take some home for our families and our village. And they pick it up. And then as they go along, they encounter something like flax, which is a much more valuable substance in ancient India. It can be used for other things, clothing, more refined things. 
one friend says, oh, that's great. I'll set down this coarser thing and pick up this finer thing. The other one's like, nope, I'm good with my hemp. Off we go. And the story goes with each sort of number of villages they pass, more and more refined objects are available. And one friend keeps trading out, setting down the coarser for the finer. And the other friend just keeps with what they've got. So this, and, and well, by the end of the story, one of them has silver and gold and the other has hemp. Because one discerned, oh, this is a more valuable thing to carry with me. And the other one didn't. So this maybe is a little bit of a counterpoint to the greed. I don't think of this picking up the more refined as greed so much as discernment. And discerning in the practice when it's time to let go of something that has been valuable or is valuable, but is maybe coarser for something more refined. One teacher calls, calls this trading candy for gold. Trading candy for gold. Continue. Continue to let go of the more um, obvious for the more peaceful, the more contented, the more subtle. The benefit of renunciation is spoken about like seeing a great vista from a mountaintop. You can see the big picture. And it's a freeing condition for the mind. And it's also a condition for other natural forms of renunciation. And it's not about I, me, or mine. Or it's not solely about that. There's room for letting go into a larger good. Even a larger good for the self. So I'm going to name the next story I'm going to tell. It's going to shade between renunciation and the third quality, generosity. And this is a story. It was published in the New York Times a number of years ago. I remember running across it then. And was, it was brought to mind because I saw someone, someone's blog about it more recently. It was um, based on the story of Chain 125. And what Chain 125 was a chain of donors of organs. Who? So the way this works, I used to be a hospital chaplain, as some of you know. Um, a husband and wife, for example, or two siblings, um, one of them might really need a kidney. In this case, they were talking about kidneys. And um, the other can't donate because they're not a match. So what the healthy person does is offer to donate to a stranger in order to start a chain of donations, gifts, that eventually will cycle back around to their sibling or spouse or loved one. What was special about Chain 125 is it wasn't started that way. It was started by someone who heard about the power, the life-giving power of organ donation on the news and just decided to give to a stranger. If you can imagine, just, oh, 
I want to offer this. I want to offer life to someone I don't know. And that ended up inspiring the biggest chain of organ donation that the networks had ever seen. 60 people total were involved. So it is an act of renunciation, this incredible kind of giving. And it was inspired by this bigger picture. Oh, I can do this. I'm experienced with this in my own family. One of my uncles gave a kidney to one of my aunts who had a chronic condition. And he knew that it was going to impact his health to a certain degree, not a huge degree, but you know, a noticeable degree as he got older. He took such joy, such joy in prolonging her life that it sustained him through the decades that act of generosity. It was really inspiring to see. So as I mentioned, this extraordinary act of letting go also serves as generosity. And it's a high bar to practice any form of generosity that is not a giving to get, not a mixed with greed type of situation. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with giving to receive. It's just a different form, right? One could say that that chain of donations, for many people, it's a form of of generosity, absolutely. And it's also a hope that the reciprocity will come back around to someone they care about. And that reciprocity itself is something beautiful. And there's a lot of simpler Examples of how giving just feels good that are more approachable for us in our daily lives. From paying it forward at the parking meter or the toll road, a smile with a stranger, a child, all the way to random acts of kindness. There's one that I read about. This is an old one. It, um, It was an Associated Press article many years ago now, well over a decade ago, that talks about how one mysterious woman paid off a struggling father's Christmas gifts for his kids at a Kmart. So they were on layaway, and he couldn't get them until they were paid off. And this mysterious stranger just came and paid off the whole thing so he could have the gifts home in time for Christmas. And then... People hearing about this were inspired anonymously to echo it. And it turned out that all over the Midwest, people were mysteriously paying off other people's layaway balances. Isn't that beautiful? Just without any acknowledgement, without a name, without necessarily knowing the person. There was a a story, a quote in this article, a nurse whose child's Christmas present was anonymously paid for, said it made me believe in generosity again. Made me believe in it again. Those are three examples of non-greed. Contentment, 
renunciation or letting go and generosity. And all of them are dimensions of non-greed. And I've left out some big ones, both from a Buddhist perspective and just from our human heart's perspective. There are many, many other mind states, heart states that don't include greed and noticing them, whether or not greed is present with them, makes space to cultivate more well-being, more freedom. And in part, this is by recognizing and countering the mind's natural tendency towards negativity. So I want to open this up for discussion and see if we can have a bit of a brainstorm about other states of mind and heart that may have occurred to you as you heard me talking that are not greed itself or don't include greed necessarily. Anybody? Anybody interested? Yes, please, Laura. Hi there. Hi, everybody. Um, when you were talking about contentment, I uh, was reflecting on um, a decision I made recently to let go of um, complaining. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and in its place to um, invoke gratitude. And and it seemed to me that contentment and gratitude were very closely aligned. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a really big one, Laura. Anybody else? Ideas? Yes, Peggy. Hi. Hi. Um, a, a really small what I'm working on, which is um, driving. I I think I noticed a couple months ago how, you know, it's my turn. It's my turn to go. I'm going to go. And um, just that I'm in a little bit of a hurry. And I, I do that more often than I liked. So I'm I'm just kind of working on being a little more generous when I'm driving and slowing down a little for others and letting some people go first and being more careful of pedestrians, even when they're not right in the crosswalk. And, you know, and it kind of came out of um, just noticing the look on a woman's face when I went ahead of her, you know, and, and yeah, she was very concerned. She had a baby with her. So beautiful that you noticed that and that it inspired a shift thank you yeah that's amazing i'm not sure if this um this fits here but something that i've been noticing and i guess i my practice is kind of back on this a little bit is um letting go of needing to know Um, uh, uh, and getting comfortable again uh, in that uncomfortableness because I find that self really arises and just the back of that is first rumination and before that is anger. So it's all kind of connected (laughs) and letting go of anger. Then I'm in rumination the next day and then I need to know. So 
it just creates a lot more space and I can be a lot more present if if I work on that uncomfortableness of not knowing. I'm not beautiful. Gonna, yeah, gonna beautiful. <laughs> I love that you've noticed the chain of events that lead to what is not useful, not well-being for your mind and have identified, wow, if I can just be in the not knowing, in the discomfort of that, cuts the whole unwholesome chain. Beautiful. Anybody else? It can be either um, examples in your own life as a couple of people have given of the contentment, the letting go, the generosity, or it can be other mind states that don't feel like greed to you. So I'll name one for me, which is equanimity. Equanimity does not include greed. Joy doesn't have to, for example. Might be some others. Yeah, Sileen. So one of the things that I've been trying to do is almost as an affirmation as often as possible throughout the day is to remind myself that all that I have is more than I need. And I'm grateful for that. And then I and, and I do that at the beginning of the day. And then I enter the day into looking for ways to either share what I have or give away what I have instead of, and it's such a different way of being because for so long I was always entering the world kind of like, what, you know, what do I need? You know, especially if I went to a store or was out, you know, where there were places to obtain things. And it was always like, what, what else can I get? And now when I remind myself that all that I have is much more than what I need, I am able to look much more for ways of giving things away and looking for opportunities to um, do that. Great. And it feels, you know, what's really nice about when you do something like that is it feels good. Exactly. And exactly. it feels much better than the other thing, which it was always like, oh my God, there's something I have to get. Yeah. And it's really nice to be rewarded, you know, emotionally and feel good about that. So anyway, thank you. Wonderful. I love what you're sharing. And there's so much there, but I'll just name two powerful things there. One is um, you didn't use the word, but I got this sense of shifting your attention to a sense of abundance, to a sense of abundance and a non-neediness there and how that can be a really powerful way of shifting from a sense of needing or greed to a sense of, of something else that feels good inherently in of itself. Great. Um, Carolyn, is it Carolyn or Caroline? It's spoken Carolyn. Okay, I'm just confused by the E. But I get a long story there. <laughs> um, 
I, I have two sort of situations that I wanted to share with the group. And, and one is the impact from actually volunteering um, because it pulls in a lot of these, you know, you're giving up your time and your, your, your generosity towards meeting people where they are. And I have been um, going to a food kitchen and preparing and serving. And it's such a different experience. When I first went, I was very apprehensive. What, what would it be like? And, and now it's much more comfortable just to look people in the eye and what would you like for lunch and to sense their gratitude. So that sense of, well, I give up five hours a week to, to work with this group. And I, sometimes there's other things I'd rather do, but it's, it's so good for me. The flip side, and it's, it's just a difficult time right now is my parents are very elderly and in, I'm not going to say rapid decline, but I find myself greedy because I want one more phone call. I want to go one more time. I want to tell them again how I love them. And it's hard to walk back and say, this is the way it is now. And um, it's like this. And it will be as it will be. And to just enjoy, well, I did have a phone call today. So, you know, I really struggle with the two extremes there. One, where maybe I'm not as connected to that community, but I know these people. I know Bill. I know Bill the vet. I mean, I know him. But I still am so attached to watching the stage of life with my parents. Thank you. That's really tender. I feel just... I hope you're noticing the hearts appearing. Yeah. <laughs> the tenderness you. appearing in my heart, too. And to nuance a little bit, yes, technically it's greed to want to be with someone who is at the end of life a little longer and that there's something very beautiful there too that love that care and anticipatory grief perhaps and that I'm not so certain those are things to expunge from our hearts as mere mortals certainly not things to feel bad about so just to to be with that in the wholeness and tenderness and fullness of our human condition. I remember a story. I can't remember who died. It may have been Ajahn Chah, a very, very famous Thai forest tradition monk. Uh, it was someone of that level in Thailand. And this story was relayed to me by a former monastic who had attended the memorial. And there were a couple of other monastics with him at the time. And one was crying and grieving and just very open-hearted about it. And the other, who was rumored to be an arhat, a fully awakened being, had no emotional response at all and said, you know, it's just changing clothes. He's moving to the next life. And I don't know which is right. Maybe there's a full awakening there. 
But this teacher relayed to me, you know, I have to say I was far more comfortable with the first person's response as a human. So the Buddha himself, the suttas, the discourses don't talk much about grief in um, in the Buddha or in his inner circle, yet they do mention after two of his senior disciples, longtime friends died, there's this little anecdote of him looking out over the assembly and saying, this assembly feels empty to me now. So even that, right? To make space for all of it in your heart. Thank you very much. And thank you for your generosity with the soup kitchen. That's really beautiful. Any other stories or anecdotes? I'm going to read one from the chat. And if you don't want to speak publicly, you're welcome to private chat me and I'll read it out anonymously. Someone writes, I'm working on letting go of self-righteousness, especially with my family members. It's a work in progress. And I can feel that there is more space the few times I can do it. Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that one. <laughs> I have a kind of silly example. Um, my husband's very tall, well, tall and, and thin, too thin, and I'm not a does not have a problem with food, but he loves vanilla ice cream. And um, the last time we went on longer than I thought, anyway, we had to go a ways to get it. And so I did research and I found out there's two ice cream places like two to four blocks away from us. Mm -hmm. We never noticed before. And so we did our little walks, and the first one didn't have real ice cream, but the second one, the next night, when we checked it out, it did, and he tasted it, and he really liked it, and um, it just brought such joy to me to find a way to please him. Now, I mean, he needs so little, and he's not a very demanding person, and um, it just, and I didn't. He didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything, and this is the first time I've spoken. it. So there was something about the the um, not doing it for anyone to notice. It was for the pleasure. Yeah, that's beautiful, Jan. Thank you. And that not doing it for anyone to notice is a classic example of the the more valued form of generosity in the Buddhist teachings of that it's just for the act of the pleasure of offering. And then that beautiful feeling you had of the appreciative joy, the mudita, which is another form of non-greed, taking joy in someone else's happiness. So that's a, it just, it might be a silly example and it's a powerful example in its own way. These moments matter. They fill up our lives, our minds with a different orientation if we attend to them and appreciate them in ourselves or in someone else. Right. Any other thoughts about this?
Yes, the main. This is something I actually think about a lot. And um, just mudita, like the power of mudita, because um, I, I, you know, the, there's a lot of groups that have like Brahma Vihara practices, but when I'm down, like Meta doesn't really do it for me. It's it's the mudita that really gives me that warm feeling. And honestly, like I, I in this day and age, or at least in my life, right, there weren't, um, there haven't been very many people that took joy in my joys. So, you know, those small moments where I do remember it, like it was a really big deal, you know, like it really felt I felt really connected, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I just, I love Mudita. It's my, it's my, <laughs> I really think it's life, life giving um, in, in a lot of ways. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> You're very welcome. And thank you for adding. Yeah, for, it, it's such a beautiful heart state and it's onward leading. I, some of you know, I spent some months in Myanmar, Burma. This was now, 11 years ago, no, 12 years ago, ordained as a Buddhist nun. And my primary practice with my teacher was metta. It took me some years to figure out that at least half the time I was supposed to be practicing metta, I was actually practicing mudita. And it's, it, it's just, it is a bubbly, beautiful mind state that then can shift a sense of connection, as Sumreen um, alluded to, Offering it to others, they can feel it. It is a powerful form of connection building. And it, it can lead to a drop in a certain kind of comparing mind or resentment or, or tightness. So whether you choose to engage in a formal practice of it or not, it can be really lovely to notice the moments that arises. Really lovely. Wow, I just looked at the clock and we're at time. Okay, that flew by for me. It's been a joy to be with all of you. So let me just briefly dedicate the merit for us. And, um, and then I'll see you in a few weeks. May the goodness of our practice here together enrich, enliven, and sustain and nourish our hearts minds and practices, and the hearts and minds and lives of those we touch, directly and indirectly, may it ripple outwards. May all beings be happy, content, grateful. May all beings feel a generosity of spirit, and may all beings be free. Thank you for your practice. Be well, and Mario Line will be here next week, and I'll be here later in the month. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you.